All right, everybody. We have a big news day going on today. Obviously, uh, it's it's hard to start a, any show, uh, Cross Town Conversations with Gene Nathan included, without, of course, acknowledging the um, horrendous uh, act in Washington today that, um, thank goodness, did not take down Representative Scalise, but uh, tried to. Um, it's it's really such evidence of how vitriolic the divide in our country has become between the parties, and, and that's what we're going to talk about today, especially as it happens not only at the national level, but locally, and it really affected our legislative session this year. I think we just barely are pulling out of um, a very divisive situation in, in Baton Rouge, and I've got uh, some heavyweight guys lined up to talk about it today. We're going to talk with um, House Representative Minority Leader uh, Walter Legere. We're going to talk with Clancy Dubos, political analyst. Nick Albaris from the Louisiana Budget Project and Senator Morell, who ha- has uh, one of the good news items. Um, so if I think number two here, I'm going to get Walt Legere. Yes. Hey, Jean. Uh, how are you? Yay. I got you on the phone. Well, I'm okay, and I guess uh, we're just a little bit better off tonight than we were when the day dawned today, despite what happened in Washington, as far yes. as our uh, legislative session, um, there was a lot of uh, um, pretty pretty big deal ga- um, grumbling on the part of a lot of people about how a small number of Republican leaders kind of um, held us all under gunpoint, so to speak, in the legislature here. Um, over the budget. And, and uh, tell me, um, uh, first of all, I guess we ought to uh, start from the end, and that is y- y'all did pass a budget today? We did. Actually, I, I had an amendment today. Uh, within the last couple of hours, we successfully amended the bill into uh, the same format that the uh, Senate had passed over to us and, and virtually identical to the version that they had offered as a compromise on the last day of the regular session, uh, we got it. We got it done uh, with 53 votes, which was the minimum number needed. And uh, but we but we we prevailed and and then passed the budget with 56 votes. And so it's going over to the Senate. Um, things are in order for the Senate to concur with that bill, I, I suspect. And uh, we may very well be able to wrap this up in the next couple of days. But it was a it was a great day. Uh, we appropriated all of the available funds. We were having a difficult time uh, with some members wanting to uh, to hold back available dollars or from critical services, and uh, I think we feel um, feel like feel vindicated from the position that we took at the end of session, and 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 uh, happy to be successful today. So let me understand. Um what happened uh, on on Friday when you were supposed to finish off the session and um, it, the actions on the part of some of the leadership in the Republican Party prevented that from happening? And, and what uh, pulled it out of the black hole today? So, you, you know, last it was actually last Thursday evening. We were supposed to finish by 6. Uh, you know, as, as you know, the House and the Senate have to pass the same form of the bill in order for it to become law. Uh, there was a clear difference in ideology between the House and the Senate, um, with House Democrats being much more aligned with the Senate version of the bill. And um, as the bill sat in its conference committee, the the, the leadership in the House uh, was uh, they they say that they were negotiating all day, but there wasn't a whole lot of negotiating going on. And within the last hour of session, it became clear that they weren't going to move forward with a with a budget bill so we um we put together a conference report the the senate uh conferees signed off on it uh one of the house conferees representative pat smith from baton rouge as a democrat signed off on it and and I, i took the floor for a series of procedural moves to try to get the bill up for a final vote um some of my motions are ruled out of order um but eventually uh which was which was not, I think, in keeping with the proper procedure. But regardless, we eventually got a, a vote done to bring the vote, the bill up for a vote, but the clock ran out uh, before we could do that. And so they essentially ran the clock out and 
were forced to come back into this special so, session. So let's get underneath all this procedural stuff. What What is this all about? What, what, what are they holding out for? Are we still dealing basically with, what is it now, 50-year-old anti-tax philosophy that I, to me just seems like it is kind of this really outmoded political philosophy that has really, what has that got to do with what's going on in this country today? And, and really addressing the problems that we need to work on solving rather than holding to, um, and I, I think this, both parties are somewhat to blame for this with, with, as you said, ideology as opposed to problem solving. Right. Dealing right. with the kind of economic transformation that we're in that is driving uh, major, major issues for people uh, on all uh, income levels in our country. Yeah, so uh, certainly there's a strong anti-tax lean um, that all kind of fits into this. But the disagreement that we had as it related to the budget was really very simple. You know, I think it, it and in some ways it, it relates to a fundamental misunderstanding of how this really works. You know, when we pass a budget, we, um, we essentially authorize uh, – different agencies and departments to have budget authority, which means that they can spend up to a certain amount. But we never really know whether or not the dollars that are going to be sufficient to fund those agencies are going to come in until we have tax collections, whether it be sales tax, income tax, or, or otherwise. And so we base our budget and our budgeting authority on projections. Um, for whatever reason, and I guess it's because we've, over the last several years, there's been an economic downturn in this state, uh, but there's also been some problems that relate back to some tax changes in 08, 09. Uh, we've had some shortfalls from year to year in our budget projections, and so there's a group of legislators led by the Republican leadership who have decided that it makes sense to not appropriate the projected dollars and to appropriate some lesser amount. The problem with that is if you don't appropriate the projected dollars, there is no authority during the year to adjust for changes in collections. And so you basically handcuff yourself, um, especially in situations like natural disasters or responses to flooding or in the or, or this year in the case of, um, uh, of the Alton Sterling protests in Baton Rouge where state police was – uh, required to, to work some overtime uh, to provide some security uh, for those demonstrations. And, you know, I mean, there are a number of things that come up during the year that require us in our joint legislative committee on the budget to make budget adjustments. But without proper authority granted, you can't do those things. And so that's why we were so adamant that we had to grant proper authority. It doesn't mean we're, right. we're going to spend money that we don't have. It just means that there's going to be authority gotcha. there. We can't spend money if we don't have it. Right. That doesn't happen. I understand this, and, and I think it's important for us to be clear about exactly what the, um, the procedural issue or the legislative issue was. But, again, I go back to the fact that underlying this is a ideology that has to do with small government, limiting government, and, um, uh, and reducing taxes to the point where you do, in fact um, – cripple government from doing its job. And, and this yeah. goes back to this fundamental attitude that government is bad, and I wish yeah. all the guys who thought government was bad would get out of it. I agree. That's what drives me mad. Yeah, I, look, I'm with you. I think you're. I, I think that I've always believed that government has a role to play in providing opportunity for people to better themselves and to have uh, a chance to be successful, and whether that's providing adequate access to health care or education or uh, – or housing, job um, training, job, job, job retraining. You know, job we, training, we have, job you know, skills, so many of these people, be. so many of these people who are out there in the marketplace today supporting whether it's Trump or Bernie, they, they you know, they're going to one or the other as a solution to the fact that the, the two uh, main parties are not breaking through with any kind of real um, proactive strategies for 
uh, getting people back into the workforce. So you just have too many people on the upper ends in the 50s who have been pushed out of manufacturing jobs that have moved offshore or kids coming out of high school right now who don't have training for the kind of technological jobs that are really what's out there today. If we don't train these kids to do that, you know, I, I, it drives me nuts to listen to newscasts that are filled with nothing but murders. I don't want to hear another damn murder story on the air because that's not what the issue is. The issue is why those kids are out there in the first place, and they're out there because they don't have job prospects. They don't have the training. They don't have the education. Um, I, I don't want to hear really a whole lot about crime. I really want to hear about what we're doing to make sure that people have an opportunity to work. If you can't work, then you're going to do things like this guy did in Washington today. Yep. Look at his look at his whole situation. It's all about the fact that he clearly has some mental issues. There's no doubt about it. Right. But he also didn't have a damn job. He was homeless. So well, one of the one, one of the you know I think I think you're right. And the one of the things that I that I'm hopeful that we'll start to do as a community and our area is uh, really start thinking about from top to bottom how we give people economic opportunity and. One of the things that's holding us back in our region is total lack of access to high-quality child care and early educational opportunities because we have plenty of people who want to who be in the workforce and who want to be out there trying to make a living and supporting their family, but, the, but it costs so much to, to access high-quality child care that it makes it difficult on them. And so what happens is those kids end up in a less than, uh, a less than appropriate and, and, and just, quite frankly, not good enough uh, educational uh, uh, situation, and they enter and they enter kindergarten behind, and they spend the rest of their lives trying to catch up. And to me, that's a failure of of us as uh, as a society to recognize what's really important, and that is we've got to support people um, and support kids from the youngest of ages and give them every opportunity to be successful as they go through their life. You know, when I was growing up, uh, way as they say, as the kids say, back in the day. Um, my education was everything, and my mother, who was a waitress and waited on tables in the middle of the day so she could be home when I got home from school, she made sure I got the education I needed. And when I wasn't so hot at math, she 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 help you. She yeah. trained me. She she coached me. She made sure I got through that. And and uh, there is no doubt that I would not be able to function in, in, in the world that I function in today if I hadn't had that educational and, opportunity. And, 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 and Walt, if I might just... For us in Louisiana, we got 70% of kids are growing up in households where both of the parents or the only parent are in the workforce. And it, it's putting tremendous pressure uh, for them to meet those needs. And I, I really think we've got to focus on it because those, those earliest... Uh, developmental stages are where the most value is, and so I'm hopeful that we'll keep can, can, we'll keep working towards doing that. Uh, I think it'll mean a lot in the long okay. run, but, and it'll but, create more economic opportunity. But here's what I want to say, because I don't want this all to be blamed on the Republicans, because for my money, what's also happened is that the Democrats have gone AWOL and have really not been able to penetrate um, into the households that have moved over into the Republican column out of desperation, really, because we are not delivering a message and we don't seem to have the energy behind the commitments you're talking about. We've got to, as they say with the Nike slogan, just do it and communicate with people who, you know, we may think are locked in with Republicans. I, I don't I really don't believe that people who are voting Republican right now in the state of Louisiana really believe um, that uh, tax reform is the most important thing in the world to accomplish. I th and I don't think that they are want to jail everybody. I think they want to make a living. There's nobody who doesn't want to make a living. There's no teenager on the street who doesn't want to make a living. Their self-esteem is totally caught up with what they can produce and do. And if we're right. not giving them the skill base that they need, that we all got when we were kids, we public schools that made a point of making sure that we were trained for that world. Well, that world's gone. It's a new world. And if we don't train kids for this new world, we're going to get this kind of crap. I know I'm, I'm almost out of time with you, and I've lectured a little bit too much because well, I'm really just, passionate oh, I just about this. I to tell you some good news. Tomorrow morning with the governor, we'll be signing the comprehensive criminal justice reform package that 
is set to, I think, move us in the right direction. Probably not all the way to where we need to be, but it should save us $264 million over the next 10 years, reinvest $184 million in drug treatment, job training, other educational opportunities. Um, this is going to be uh, tremendous for so wait, our So let me just uh, understand, because I, I don't know enough about what's in that bill. Is this bill going to give kids who are in prison or coming out of it an opportunity to learn skills that will help them get jobs 100%. when they get out? It's absolutely committed. That's that's a that's a major plank of what the the whole point of the uh, reform is about. I mean, we have to recognize that in Louisiana, we, when when people are incarcerated, it means that they're serving time uh, for committing a crime. But it, it it also means we we have to invest in rehabilitation and job training and reentry and and helping people become uh, members of the community again. I mean, so what we've been doing marking, here has not worked. Yeah, so they're and not just we're, marking we're time. We're moving in a totally different direction, and a lot of that um, has to do with the fact that we were smart enough to elect a governor that would actually sign those bills. We've been working on this for a decade, but we had a governor who would have, who never would have supported and, and would veto those bills, and now we have one that, that understands. So it's, it's, it's a move in the right direction. Walt, thank you for everything that you do and did to get this budget uh, this far and um, and to get some of these reforms that you're speaking of. Well, thank I, you. I, I I'm sure hope that the Senate. You. I hope we'll catch up soon. Thanks. And uh, let me know if, um, uh, if 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 you run into any more log jams because I'll rant for you on this on the station. On my thank show. you. Thank you. Take care. Good Bye-bye. luck with the uh, finishing it off. All right. Well, um, you can hear my, my sense of urgency on this. Um, but uh, let, let's hear what uh, Clancy Dubose is a political analyst. Uh, Clancy, did you follow? Did you hear at all what Walt was talking about? On criminal justice reform, yes. I followed that very closely. Uh, in fact, it's a series of – it's a set of 10 bills, Gene, not one. It took 10 bills, and it had probably six, six or seven different authors. John Alario, the president of the Senate, authored two of the bills. Danny Martini – who formerly chaired the Criminal Justice Committee in the House, I think also one of the Judiciary Committees in the Senate, was one of the authors. The real hero, I mean, they're all heroes, but the, 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 I guess the unlikeliest uh, hero and the guy who has emerged as a rookie of the year and the real hero of this fight is the newest member of the legislature, a freshman representative who is serving not only his first term, but this is his first session. He was just elected uh, last fall. His name is Joe Marino. He represents Gretna, and he is the only practicing criminal defense attorney in the entire legislature. And he knows this issue so well that Senator Alario, who's the dean of the legislature and is considered, you know, a guy who knows the ins and outs of everything, especially the budget procedure. But Senator Alario and Senator Martini, when they were presenting their bills, in front of the Senate committee, they asked Representative Marino to go sit at the table with them, and they introduced the bill, and the first question that got asked, they said, well, look, Representative Marino really knows the guts of this. We're going to let him take it from here. Wow. And Joe, Joe Marino steered this thing through all of the hostile questions from legislators who wanted the grandstand. There was one who wants to be a DA at some point. And, you know, they were doing all of their talking points, and he would just – and for a guy who feels as passionately about this subject as Marino does, he very dispassionately, very loyally calmed the waters and said, no, Senator, or no representative, or no, Mr. Chairman, here's what, here's what that really means. And I understand your concerns, but here are the facts. And he just walked him through it very, you know, like a deep pool of calm water, and he steered this thing through it. Uh, the advocate did a very nice profile on him, that he emerged as a the unlikely expert. It's very likely, actually, if you know Joe and you know his background. And I had a chance to get to know him a little bit before uh, this uh, regular session started. He and I sat down, had a very long cup of coffee uh, back in January or February. And the guy is very thoughtful and very, uh, very intelligent, and he really thinks through all of these issues. But this is an issue that he said from the get-go. I wanted to be on the Criminal Justice Committee, and I want to work for criminal justice reform. And it was really kind of a Mr. Smith goes to Washington. In wow. this case, Mr. Marino goes to Baton Rouge. Kind Fantastic. Of is, he a, get it through. is he a Democrat or Republican? He's an independent. Ah, interesting. How old is he? Yeah. Uh, 
I younger. Would say he's in his early 40s. So, you know, I, I think what, what, what I'm hearing here is what I think a lot of people are thinking all around the country, that we need some fresh blood in the entire political landscape that is that reflects the frustration of the populace on the log jams in, in every legislative house around the country and in Washington that has been dominated with these, these ideologies that you heard me say, if you heard anything on uh, just before, um, are outdated, outmoded, a waste of time, and do not reflect any kind of proactive approach to dealing with the economic transformation that we are going through that no one politically seems to really be doing a job. And that includes all the, you know, the good guys and the bad guys. I just think that they're wasting a lot of time on fighting over ideologies that um, are irrelevant. I mean, right. t- tax so reform, give me a break already. You're saying, let's say it in a slightly different way. I think it's not limited to uh, 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 populists. I think people who are middle of the road, I think people who are slightly to the left and slightly to the right are all very upset, as well as populists. And even some, some right-wingers are, are upset. They, they hear people giving talking points, and our, our elected leaders tend to talk either at each other or past each other, but never to each other because they never listen. And, and they just don't, you know, they don't come together and try to work things out. It, it, although this, this package of bills that, that Walt raised, it really is, that was the bright spot, the one, not just the bright spot, it was a, it was a supernova. I mean, this was a really incredible thing that got done when you consider how uh, ideologically divided and partisan our legislature is, and yet they did this. Now, it took a push from the business community, a lot of big-time business leaders, uh, not just in New Orleans, but statewide, uh, defense lawyers, prosecutors, judges, you know, business types, conservatives, liberals, you name it. So, so Clancy, uh, would you call this a blueprint for how we can break through on some other issues? Is this reflect some kind of a, a, a new uh, momentum or energy that might get passed? Well, I think it represents a blueprint, not necessarily the only blueprint, but it's certainly one that works. If you you got to go back a long ways. Uh, when there was a push, when Bobby Jindal first came in for ethics reform, there was a, a committee of people that formed in the private sector and came up with an ethics package. And then Jindal, of course, watered it down, claimed it as his own, but watered it down and reformed everybody else except himself. Uh, if you go back further than that, the very first move for fiscal reform in Louisiana was an effort that was financed by Jim Bob Moffitt, but he hired experts and a, and a big collective of people uh, put together a, a package of fiscal reform bills that would have passed, except Buddy Romer got in and said, no, we're going to wait a year because I'm going to be more popular next year, which is ridiculous. And, all, and frankly, Romer just didn't want to have Jim Bob's name on it, which is also ridiculous because if he had just passed what that committee had pushed for, Nobody would be given Jim Bob credit. They'd be given Roma the credit because he was right. the governor who pushed it through. But it just goes to show how sometimes we blow these opportunities. But but yes, the, the basic, the basic, and you know that you know this from your own study of history and politics. Real change, fundamental change, comes from the bottom up, not from the top down. And all of these were examples of bottom up. It didn't come from just the governor dictating. It came from whether it was a business community or a coalition of business and labor and, and trial lawyers and oil companies and whatever. But when, we, when, when the private sector puts together meaningful coalitions and studies it and, and gets, the, gets the message right, real change can happen. And, and I think what, what the frustration, to get back to what you said, it's certainly felt among populace, but it's felt by people who are middle of the road. You know, the average people oh, yeah, like I wasn't... Said, who, are voting, who are voting one way right. or the other uh, are mostly former Democrats now voting Republican out of frustration, not so much because they really think they're Republicans. Exactly. It's just that the Republicans are telling them what they want to hear, but they're not necessarily delivering. So to, my, to that point, um, I think the Democrats are as much to blame for this as the Republicans can claim success or credit in winning people's hearts over. Because, I, 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 frankly, I haven't heard a new message out of the Democratic Party in 
in in a decade or so. I mean, I think yeah. the whole thing I'll getting 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 uh, getting um, uh, uh, Obama into the president's office was a huge thing, and that was magnificent. But truthfully, messaging in terms of messaging and programming, and and what the Democrats represent. Tell me something new, <laughs> you know. Yeah. As well, uh, the one thing, the one thing, Obama's signature program. He came in on the, the platform of hope and change, which is, you know, wonderful. We're here. Everybody's for hope, you know. And most people are for change, and just change in which direction. But and his signature program is his health care bill, and it's under assault. So you know, but but other than that, and the that, usual suspects. Little, that is a big thing, but it's. It's not. It did, certainly didn't go as far as a lot of Obama's initial supporters wanted him to go. But on the other hand, Ronald Reagan didn't go as far as some of his initial supporters wanted him to go in the opposite direction. But that here, often here, happens. Here's what I really want to know, Clancy. This is what I don't understand. Why can we not get through to the voters on the sham of the messaging coming out of primarily the Republican Party. Again, the, I blame the Democrats for not having anything really new to offer, and I think that's part of it. If you don't have something cool to attract you, then you fall, you go to the default. And in this case, the default has been Republican uh, a party. And But what the Republican Party says they are for and what they're really for are two different things. And why, why is it so hard to get that message across to voters of what the reality is versus what the oratory is uh, it's i don't know why but i there's certain i think it's going to get easier for two reasons one getting back to what you said earlier there's a profound level i think an unprecedented level at least in our lifetime of frustration an unprecedented level of frustration and the one thing that's new uh compared to when you were we're not not that we're old but when we were first on the scene the, the availability of mass communication through social media it's going to be a lot easier to get that, that message out there, except that there's a lot of other noise. But let me get back to one other thing you said. I think the real opportunity here, when you talk about fresh blood, we've had fresh blood, but it's the fresh blood that's being ginned out by the two parties, and it's not really new. I think the real opportunity here, and it goes back to what I said about Joe Marino, is for independence. Yep. Uh, young people, young people, my two sons, I got a son who's 35 and a son who's 23. They're both independent. They don't give a hoot about either party. Right. They feel disenfranchised by the messaging on both sides. And I think that if there's hope in the future, it's, I am excited because I've been an independent for the last seven years. And I really wanted to be independent before that. But once I found out I could change my, my registration online and not go stand in line in, at City Hall, I did it in two minutes. But anyway, the young people are registering independent in droves. Interesting. And I think that's where the hope is for independents to come in and say, to hell with the political parties. We're going to dismantle them because they're just existing. They're, they're passing laws for their own benefit. I, um, individuals and members of Congress and the Senate where, where they get their own health care package and, and, then, and they don't, they're not subject to the insider trading laws and things like that, as, and, and as well as laws that just sort of cement in the two-party system, not just the two-party system, but those two parties. So I think independents are going to be the way that we change things. I, 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 I think that's, uh, that's a very good idea, and I, I can see the trend, and I hope you're right about that. But I also feel that we need to reach the, the people who were Democrats or who are more centrist Republicans and make sure they understand the gap between the rhetoric and the true um, uh, in, um uh, agenda of the Republican Party, which without a doubt, and I hope I hope some of those folks out there who consider themselves to be um, die-hard, loyal Trump supporters who will say they're for him no matter what can see through how much rhetoric he puts out there and how he goes and does whatever he really wants to do. It has nothing to do with the rhetoric. And, for example making it easier for the the top 1% to make even more money, whether it's from tax breaks or from changing the laws that were limiting how they could manipulate money um, on, the, on the one hand. I, I just don't think that we're not, we're really going to like shift the balance sufficiently 
to, to bring in new programming that is truly relevant unless we develop a stronger and more effective message and messaging technique to not just the young folks who want to be independents because they can't stand what's going on between the parties, but people who are already, who are in those parties and who are hopefully going to become more and more disillusioned. And I think that's the best thing about Trump is that there's such a huge gap between what he says and what he really is doing. How can they not figure it out? But you know what? We have to help them figure it out. And I don't think the Democratic yeah. Party is doing that. I, I was an independent when I first registered to vote back in the day. Um, and the only reason I became a Democrat was to be able to vote for Bobby Kennedy in New York when he was running. And my friends who were just passionate about getting him elected persuaded me to change my affiliation. I became a Democrat in order to vote in the primary because the primary system up there was, you know, between the part, within the party. Um, and I've been a Democrat ever since, but I, I'm just appalled. I feel like the Democratic Party in the state of Louisiana has rolled over. Tell me I'm wrong. I just don't see what the hell no. they're doing. Well, they, it, it, I don't know if they rolled over or they got rolled over. But, but you don't get rolled over, Clancy, Clancy. You don't get rolled over. Oh, sometimes you do, yeah. They just got out message and then it just steamrolled. It, it, it swelled and... Um, you know, it, it's part of it is messaging, but Louisiana is a conservative state. But, there, but John Bell Edwards proved that, you know, a Democrat or just somebody who's, you know, a, a Democrat. With the, Clancy, with, well, that, bear in mind, he also had the right opponent. State of Louisiana was the only state in the South that was pro-labor for years. It elected Huey Long. It elected Earl Long. Um, it's had Democratic mayors in the city of New Orleans. Don't tell me we're a conservative state. I think that we are a conservative state only since Lee Atwater and and um, all of his yeah, yeah. all of his well, students today, came behind I, I him. Mean, and, we've and, always been a conservative state, but today we are a conservative red state today. It I is. don't think we're really red. That's what I'm trying to say. I think that people have been hornswoggled into being red. I don't think they're really red. That's I think. I hope you're right. <laughs> That's all I can say. But, but the voting patterns show what they show. And you're right. And it may be, I'm not saying, we're just looking at the same thing from a slightly different perspective. At the end of the day, Louisiana, like the rest of the South, is fertile ground for the Republican Party right now. Right now, as things stand. That's what, what you're talking about is how can things change. And I think better messaging, whether it's from the Democrats or the Independents or whoever, can change the, the, can change the landscape. Microphone is funny. Okay, uh, better messaging, but also, quite frankly, a change in attitude towards people who yeah, are yeah. voting red. I mean, I think one of the worst things that I heard in the presidential election was Hillary Clinton uh, calling oh, Trump supporters that, that deplorables. deplorables yeah. That was that was like a verification of the worst assumptions on the part of working people about the Democratic Party, that it's a party of Eastern liberal elite. You're right. And, and, and you know what? When I, when I saw that quote, I just I was cringed. like... How, how could you, how could any politician, on the left or the right, how could any politician make such a rookie mistake, a stupid mistake? And, and I think that's what, one of the things that validated the, the, the messaging from the Republicans, and I'm not saying that this part of their messaging was wrong, that Hillary was fundamentally not a likable person and not to be trusted. Well, it just played right into everything they said yeah, about her. Yeah. Um, Clancy, I'm, I'm dying to, uh, you know, I could talk to you for two hours without stopping. I got my next speaker <laughs> waiting, but I got to okay, ask you man. just really quickly for a, a sound bite on the mayor's race. I can't resist. Well, I, I think there will be at least one, maybe two more significant candidates. Okay. I'll go with that. Let's let's talk soon. All right, Jane. Take Thank care. you for calling in. Bye bye. Take care. Bye bye. All right. We uh, on two. Okay. Um, so, hi. Is this Mr. Alvarez? Alvarez. Yes. Uh, Nick. Uh, yeah, Nick Alvarez. Hey, Nick. Okay. Um, okay. Now we're going to do a little bit of nuts and bolts because y your focus. Let's go back a little bit to, you know, uh, uh, one day ago, we, we were still in this horrible logjam. 
it looks like we're out of it. Of course, we still have to have this thing bounce back to the Senate and, and get resolved at that level. But um, rather, we've, we've already, I don't know if you've been listening to the show, but Walt kind of walked through some of the, you know, the, the details on the issues that have to do with, you know, um, uh, not holding back money to meet any kind of unexpected uh, shortfall in the projected budget and all that. But I, I, what I am sort of trying to get at in this show is, is how we can uh, move forward from these old political um, uh, positions that uh, we've been lined up behind on both sides and, and have a more dynamic situation. Clancy just said, and it was very interesting, did you hear him? Uh, the tail end, yeah. Well, um, the tail end is the most interesting thing that he talked about, and because I keep saying, you know, what is it going to take to get things out of this dynamic? And and he said he says the real opportunity he sees is with independent voters, and that young people are registering in droves as independents, and it's an interesting. Um, a possible trend, but uh, I still uh, insisted, and uh, you probably heard me spouting out about how I think that if we don't figure out a way to communicate with people who have become Republicans um, recently out of frustration with the Democrats, and, and if the Democrats don't, and Republicans don't start dealing with more proactive, positive ways of helping working people and business people figure out how to do new things. That it, it's going to take a lot of innovation to survive in this new economy. It's, it's not the same. We're not in the same place we were 20 years ago. It's totally different. Manufacturing is offshore, and everything is about entrepreneurial efforts, about technology, about the creative industries, which I still don't hear people in the economy talk about. Um, what, what's your feeling about how we have to look at budgeting for government differently? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think that at the end of the day, you know, we have to look at budgeting and we have to look at the policy process as trying to solve public problems. You know, and we do that collaboratively. We do that through the democratic process. Uh, and we need to kind of step away from some of the talking points uh, about you know, the size of government and, and this and that. You know, when we look at state government, it's like, what are we talking about? We're talking about funding our schools, and we're talking about funding health care services, especially for those who are most vulnerable. And so these are kind of the basics, you know, funding roads and bridges, you know, throughout our state. And so, of course, no one likes to pay taxes, uh, but, you know, we, we have to come to some recognition that, you know, our tax dollars – are for a public purpose, and we need to, to figure out as a state, you know, how we can put together uh, a functioning state budget um, that that is an honest budget uh, that reflects the realities in our state. Because let's face it, you know, we've got a lot of needs here in Louisiana, and I think you know if we can come together beyond party labels, beyond ideology, uh, we can down and say, all right, we've got some real problems on our hands. Let's figure out how to fix them. Uh, and I think that's where the focus should be. So <laughs> one of the things that, uh, that it, it seems to me um, we have to figure out how to do, and that is we have to rebrand the word taxes. It has become sort of the devil incarnate, right? The, the, Demo the, um, the, the Republican Party has made that the be-all and end-all. Taxes are terrible, so therefore cut taxes, cut taxes, cut taxes. That's all I want to talk about. And what that means is just what you said. Okay, that means you're not going to have schools uh, with, the, with the capacity, the equipment, the teaching that they need to make sure that the kids coming out of our schools today are able to actually get jobs in this new technological economy, right? That's one thing. Healthcare. You know, it's only going to get worse if, if they do what they're talking about doing at the national level right now, and he pushes through some kind of health care bill that really cuts 23 million people out of uh, health insurance. That's going to make things worse for our state. Um, infrastructure, yeah, hello, infrastructure. He was talking about infrastructure. They were going to fund infrastructure, and now he's just talking about privatizing it. 
I don't see how that's going to result in, in, in getting the, the roads and bridges. And, oh, my God, how many rusty bridges have you gone over lately? It's scary. Um, we have to figure out how do we redefine and get away from that word being such a, a bad guy word. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a definite challenge. And people, uh, you know, want to know where their tax dollars are going, and, and that's reasonable. You know, they want to see results, and sometimes it can be hard. You know, when you have a very large institution, when you have very large institutions that they're going into, uh, but we need to look at again the real needs of our state uh, and say, look, you know, overall we're actually a, a, a low tax state, uh, although we do have the highest sales tax in the country, uh, and that disproportionately hits people at the lower end of the income spectrum. And it's so, called a regressive again, really, tax. Really, you know, folks in the middle and and the bottom are paying uh, almost twice the rate, the effective rate, as those who are at the very top in state and local taxes. And so we need to just say, look, the people at the top are, are really doing well, and let's ask a little bit more so that we can invest in our people. You know, we can fund higher education, which has been cut by 55% over the last decade. You know, we need to fund higher education so that we can be part of this new economy that you talked about so that we can innovate, so that we can come up with new ideas. New you know jobs. what? If, if, you know, if so we, we don't, if we don't, if we don't, we die. If we don't figure out how to make sure that our next generations have the skills to deal with the new economy, this state just dies. I mean, forget hopefully we'll still have a, a shoreline from what's going on with coastal erosion. But, I mean, if, if, if when you said 55% um, reduction in higher ed, is that in the state of Louisiana or nationally? In the state of Louisiana. In the state of Louisiana. How pathetic is that when people need yep. more education than ever to deal with the kind of jobs that we have to do now? Is it, isn't anybody paying attention? Do they think that, we, that, that we're going to somehow magically bring back manufacturing jobs or magically keep people at the teller counter in, in stores where they're automating everything that you do in the store? You know, or, or you don't even have to go to the store anymore now because it's, there's so much being done online. Is anybody paying attention to – we went from, from manufacturing to we talked about the service industry. So many people were in the service industry. Guess what, folks? Those jobs are going away too now. So what are people going to be doing for a living if they don't learn how to do the technology, the creative industries, the health and educational uh, uh, jobs that are out there. Yeah, we can still build infrastructure. That's going to give us some jobs. But um, if, if we don't train our workforce, then we're, we're going to die. Yeah, you know, we, we have to have a, we have to take a step back and, and have a real conversation about jobs. And at the forefront of that conversation is about education. And it's about providing those skills. It's about workforce development as well. And, and that includes an upfront of that investment. And so if we invest in our people, we invest in education, we invest in training, then we're going to see a return on that investment. And so that's what we need to think about, you know, when we talk about taxes. We need to think about it in terms of investing in our people, investing in our state. And there does need to be accountability and there does need to be public trust in the, those, where those dollars are going. But, you know, you hear it from the leaders of our institutions of higher learning. They were in... Uh, committee hearings, you know, this week, it sounded like, you know, it's kind of like Groundhog Day because with the special session, it's the same thing. You, you, you hear it. You, they need investment. They need the dollars in order to invest in our students so that we can have people prepared for the jobs of the 21st century. So, so, uh, so, I, so, I, I, so at the end of the day, we, we, we need to kind of reframe that, that idea of, of taxes uh, and, and really think about it as investment. As yeah. I think that's a really that's an excellent way to uh, to shift the concept of what taxes mean. Uh, but I think that uh, to your point about public trust, that that's a big part of the problem. That there's been so much we're doing so much better a job uh, actually in the media of outing the corruption in government that I think that's been a contributing factor to people being disillusioned, not just with one party or the other, but with government in general. And it's partly due to the attack on government by um, conservatives, but it's also a result of, of the increased um, 
transparency as a result of media efforts to out the the corruption. I mean, you know, um, uh, I think WVUE has done probably more than almost anybody to calling that out, and that's uh, really made a difference in, in, in people's understanding. But at the same time, I think we have to talk about what government does do in partnership with the private sector. So maybe the whole idea of how that money gets moved has to be um, framed in not so much going into government, but going into investment at initiatives that are public-private. Most of what government does today is public-private. Very little of it is purely public. Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely right. And look, you know, you've got, you've got good folks and bad folks in every institution, in the public sector, in the private sector, nonprofits. And so, you know, I'll give you one example. I mean, my son has, has allergies and we have to buy an EpiPen. Look at, you know, the, the scandal for, for Mylan. You know, I'm still giving my money over to him because he needs that, uh, even though there's a lot of corruption that's been shown, you know, in, in jacking up the price of, of, of that EpiPen. Um, you know, it's the same thing in, in huge institutions like government. You're going to find uh, you're going to find some examples where people aren't doing the right thing. But the answer to bad government is good government, and, and having those safeguards in place. And that's something you know. You look at the budget for Louisiana. We were cutting funding for the inspector general and the legislative auditor, those who are tasked with making sure that our agencies are doing what they're supposed to be doing with the tax dollars that we give them. And so it's important to have those safeguards in place so that the public does trust their dollars are going to good places. But at the end of the day, we have to remember that we're giving those funds over to our fellow Louisianans, people in our communities who are working in the public sector, and most of whom are doing a great job day in and day out, haven't received a raise, many of them in a decade, because of the state's fiscal situation. And so that's, that's just where we're at, and uh, we need to continue to hold our elected leaders accountable, to hold everyone in government accountable, but also in the private sector and throughout, uh, throughout you know, our community. So. Well, I, I, I really appreciate uh, you coming on, and I know you know a lot more of, uh, in the details that we were able to get to today, so hopefully we'll have a chance to talk again in the future. And obviously I'm on a little bit of a roll here about this because I'm frustrated, as other people are, and I'm, I'm, I'm just tired of, of hearing rhetoric put out there that is just old school and irrelevant to uh, the fix that we're in today, and, and it's not a fix. There's opportunities, a whole new world, and we really have to take advantage of it, and, and we can't take advantage of it if we just hang back behind, um, you know, some old ideas that uh, are irrelevant to what's going on today. Thank you so much, um, really, Nick, and uh, uh, with the Louisiana Budget Project for calling in, I look forward to talking with you again in the future soon. Great. Thanks a lot, Gina. I really Thank appreciate you. you having me on. All right. Bye. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. All right. And uh, now we go to uh, a little bit of good news because we're going to talk to J.P. Morrell, and he has been um, he has been one of the heroes in the legislature this year because he took on a, a cause that is, is very, very important to our economy, and it, is, it addresses exactly what we've been talking about. It, it looks at how we make sure that Louisiana – um, is able to develop a growth industry that can employ a lot of people both directly and indirectly. And we had some scuttlebutt about this law last year that kind of went in one direction and did not really paint the full picture. We had to deal with some bad actors who made us the whole situation look bad, but we've kind of uh, I believe cleaned that up and come up with a, a new strategy. And J.P. Morell uh, is on the phone with us now. Am I correct? Are you there? Yes, I'm here. All right, JP. So you <laughs> you took on uh, what was it in the beginning kind of, um, I have to give you some uh, major credit for the courage to get out in front of this because this was a very unpopular idea last year. Last year, everybody <laughs> said, film tax credits, giving money to those rich people from Hollywood. Why do we need to be doing that? That was the line, and you had to get past that line. That's not a hard, easy line to get past when you, all you do is look at celebrities in their, 
you know, $10,000 gowns on the Academy Awards and you think, oh, they don't need another penny. But that's not what it's about. And, and, and you got to the heart of this. And so tell me how you did it. Well, first off, you're exactly right. The, the the media has not been very friendly to the film tax credit program. Obviously, there were some bad actors that um, with the 2015 reform, we tried to address some of that. But it's a lot of misinformation. When we talk about uh, the film industry creates 13,000 jobs in Louisiana. Now, that some people it sounds like a lot, some people it sounds like a little, but it's it's a lot. I mean that that's 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 as much as many of the huge sustaining industries that we all try to give tax credits out for right now. Like for example, I mean that's much more than <clears throat> parts of the oil industry it's much more than other groups and it's a diversified field we're trying to we're trying to actually for for years louisiana's economy has been based upon oil and gas and tourism and both those things one is completely at the mercy of discretionary income because if people give the risk if the budget is great you can travel and you can go tour do, do tourism things but if the if, if if your personal budget's bad then the entire the tourism tourism economy kind of kind of craters oil and gas at the mercy of the up and downs of the oil prices now those things are both worthy fields we should continue to invest in but part of diversifying your portfolio is that hopefully when one thing underperforms another thing overperforms but yeah i mean it's it was a difficult narrative to overcome. It's hard to remind people that there's a there are dozens of other tax credit programs that are more generous than movie and hundreds of people that may, that are multimillionaires take advantage of it. They're just not at the Academy Awards. But so so wait said, a minute. So are you saying are you saying that that there are tax credit programs in other industries, both in our state and elsewhere, that are richer? And, and 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 even more invest even more um, in giving back to the industry than the film tax credits. Is that right. what you I mean, said? I mean, you look, look at it this way: the inventory tax credit, which is a credit we give, which is a rebate on um, taxes paid locally to assessors by major industries like the Chemical Association and the like. The inventory tax credit, on average, costs us five five to six hundred million dollars a year. And it's kind of when you when you really dig into it, it's kind of a ridiculous tax credit, but no one really talks about it because the millionaires who are making money off it, they're just not the Academy Awards, the Tonys. They're just quiet millionaires who live in Louisiana and who arguably just lay low or, or you know multinational companies. So credit programs all have their all have their place. They all provide some benefit or should be you know reformed or neutralized. And movie has gone through two substantial revisions. The first revision was two years ago when the program was capped and we changed some of the metrics to try and clean it up. And this year, working with the industry, working with the people, Louisianians who work in the industry, as well as the studios and the like we hope to lure here, we did a further revision, which really ratcheted down and cleaned it up. Uh, the problem we saw two years ago when we reformed the program is that it was reformed very haphazardly and the bill dealing with the credit itself, my bill two years ago did not pass, and another legislator's bill passed, and he kind of broke the program. And by break it, he put a cap on the program, but he put a cap on the back end, not the front end. Well, what does that mean? He basically created a credit funnel where we had a $180 million cap on credits that could be redeemed, but we did not cap how many credits could be issued. So what was happening is that the Department of Economic Development was issuing 200, 250 million in credits each year, but you can only claim 180. So if you made it through the door on July 1st fast enough, you got your credit. If you didn't, you got bumped. And what that did is it created uncertainty in the credit industry, so people stopped really coming to Louisiana. Now, about six months ago, I announced I was tackling this issue, and just the fact, Gene, that I said I would fix it, led to Hollywood reinvesting in the state because I explained to them what I plan on doing. Now, on its face, I actually made the program less generous. I actually capped the front end at 150, which is lower than the back end cap of 180. Now, what that did is it provided certainty. Many studios, many people who live in Louisiana said, listen, we can deal with a cap if the cap is certain and we can budget for it. So. We made the cap leaner. We got rid of the, a lot of the bad actors are all credit brokers. Uh, these are the people who buy the credit when the movie is finished filming, and they sell it on the secondary market for a profit. We actually prohibit credit brokers 
going forward in the program. And we're going to encourage more people if they use the credit to sell that credit back to the state rather than claim it against their income because it, what we're finding is that when you claim the credit against your income, that credit, that dollar credit is worth a dollar of revenue to the state. When you sell that credit back to the state, on average, you sell it for 90 cents, which is the state saves 10 cents on every dollar if we buy back. So we had some revisions in there, but the most important thing, Gene, is that we brought certainty to the program. The program is actually going to be a cheaper program for the state, but it's one that people understand will utilize and that the entire industry embrace. So it seems like, obviously, we're not going to be competing directly with the Georgias or Torontos because they have no caps. But for purposes of what we're trying to do, which is to keep the NCIS New Orleans here, to become a tier two destination for for decent films, we're that. And that's really kind of where we're going to be for the foreseeable future. Okay. And, and, and here's what I think we need to focus on for uh, the last – we've got about five more minutes to talk. Um, it, it, what I understand is the outcome, what a lot of people never understood about this, is the ripple effects, is how many people in the economy – actually benefit from this, make money, take that money home, feed their families, are able to pay their rent. I mean, it's not just the people who actually work on the films, but it's the people who prepare the food that are uh, that served at the canteens, who construct the sets that are used on on the uh, uh, in the production of the films, who drive people around, who produce, put out the lights. You are 110 percent right. And people keep citing Lauren Scott's most recent report on the program saying, well, it's only a 30 cents return on the dollar. If you read the entire report beyond Lauren Scott's comments, LED says, no, we think it's a $4 to dollar return. And they said, because when Lauren Scott's looking at the program, he's looking directly at what does the state get directly back from each credit spent, which means how much the state get back in income tax and how much the state get back in direct sales tax. When you look at the indirect benefit, which is hotel, motel, local uh, local sales tax, when you look at all of those local things that are utilized, like, for example, like you cited, all these sets that are built in Louisiana, these massive sets that are built and torn down, they're all made with Louisiana lumber. Uh, Mark Hill Lumberyard in New Orleans said when the film industry was blowing and going, they had a over 500% increase in business. That meant they hired more employees. They spent more local taxes. They did more investment in the local economy. When the industry contracted, they saw a similar drop, and they're beginning to see a bump again with the industry coming back again. So, I mean, you're right. The, when Lauren Scott is looking at the value of this program, he's looking at it in a very, very narrow tunnel vision. He's not looking at how this affects Louisiana families, how kids can go to better schools, how their parents can move to better houses, can they make their rent, can they pay their credit card bills, can they pay their cell phone bills, can they afford to um, maybe uh, put their kids in daycare so they can go work that job. They don't factor any of that in. His productivity is in, a, is in, a, is in like a tunnel. So if you read the whole report, LED's overall view of the program was very positive, which is why they were so interested in working with me, working with the stakeholders, and working with some of the opposition. I mean, the budget project you just had on, they would prefer the film cap be at $100 million or less, but we could all agree that what I did, and uh, I think uh, the Public Affairs Research Council also agreed, by contracting the program and making it more stable, it had an overall benefit for the program and for the taxpayer because there's more, even more transparency now in the program. Well, congratulations and hallelujah, because as somebody who is committed to the creative industry sector of the economy of our state, which I believe we are just vastly undervaluing and failing to invest in at the level that we should so that we can actually become a leading state economy instead of always coming up from the behind. I am so uh, thrilled with what you've accomplished here, and I congratulate all the people who were involved, the stakeholders that I know Jason and Jimmy and all of those guys really worked with you. They were all I'm going to have I'm gonna get Jason on this Friday uh, as a father for my Father's Day show, but um, I'll touch on this again because this is so important to um, all of the uh, arts and, and, and the creative industries in the city, and one of these days are, are, we'll all understand how important that is for our economic future in general. Love to uh, talk with you more about this and hope to have you on again, and thanks very much for making time for me with the um, legislature just closing up for the day. Okay. Thank Thanks, you, J.P. Morrell. Yeah.
Bye. Take care. All right, y'all. So I hope that uh, you were able to follow that. We kind of uh, rushed through it, and you know, obviously, I had a pretty strong point of view that we have to figure out a way to get new messaging out about what the value of government and our programs are, and how our taxes are. I like what uh, we came up with when we were talking back there with. Um, I think it was Walt Legere who was saying it's investment. It's all about investment as opposed to uh, just taxes. It's not taxes. It's investment in all of us. Gene Nathan, Crosstown Conversations. Now, don't forget, new showtime, Wednesdays at 3, and we're going to do fathers. We're going to have some very interesting fathers on all over the spectrum on our show uh, next week. Chuck is going to come on from his show here at WBOK. Sydney Bestoff is going to be on. Um, Mark Romick, who handles a lot of the tourism business of the city, is going to come on. These are all people who are fathers or sons of fathers who have busy lives but figure out how to balance them with their um, with their uh, children. And uh, also Jason uh, Wagensback with the film industry. Um, he's going to come on as well. So Friday at 3, new time, same girl, Jean Nathan, Crosstown Conversations. WBOK, Real Talk for Real Times. <laughs>